Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Robert Cherney about his new book, Victor Onatoff and the Politics of Art. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks for agreeing to uh, come on. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I'm retired from the history department at San Francisco State University. I was a faculty member there for 41 years. I've been retired now for almost five years. Uh, and my specialty has been political history and the history of California and the West. I have to say that that history really shines through in this book, that because Victor Arnotoff lived for so many years in the Bay Area, you have a very easy familiarity with a lot of the geography of it. And I thought it was one of the many things that stood out about the book. Well, thank you. Um, I, it, it's it's a book that really deals with most of the 20th century. And that was a bit of a challenge for me. But in the end, I think it all came together. How was it that you came to write this book? Well, I've been a member of the uh, board of directors of the Presidio Historical Association for almost 20 years now. The Presidio Historical Association is a, an advocacy group for the Presidio of San Francisco. And at one point, they were organizing a lecture series about the Presidio, and I volunteered to do a lecture on the mural at the chapel there, a mural that was done by Victor Arnatoff. And at the time, I knew about that much about it. <laughs> there was a mural there done by Victor Arnatoff. And I knew a little bit about him. But to uh, prepare for the lecture, I ordered the microfilm version of his papers from the Archives of American Art. And I became absolutely fascinated with his story. And I first thought, there's an article here. And then I decided, no, there's a book here. And at that point, I managed to connect with his grandson, Peter, and had a nice interview with him. And as we were concluding the interview, Peter handed me a box and said, well, you'll need to take these with you. It turned out to be a collection of family papers going back to the 1920s with letters between Victor and his wife, Lydia, and including just a wide range of material that that helped him to bring alive the person of Victor Arnatoff and his family. You make it clear, though, this was a challenging book to write from a source perspective, not in terms of availability, but in terms of languages. You mentioned that you were not just dealing with English and Russian, but you were also dealing with Spanish and even Chinese. And and that really gives a sense of the, the breadth of, of Victor Arnatov's life. It really was a fascinating one. I wonder if you could start us off by explaining something about his, his early years. Arnatov was born in 1896. Uh, in what was then southern Russia. Uh, it's now part of Ukraine. Uh, he, as someone born in 1896, he was destined to reach military age in 1914, the year that World War I broke out. 
uh, and he was sort of rushed through his last year of school and sent off to cavalry officer school. And then he served in the Russian cavalry for the duration of World War I. Uh, and after the Bolsheviks came to power, of course, they withdrew Russia from that war. And eventually they dissolved the army. But Arnatov was unable to go back home because his home was being occupied by the Germans. So he accompanied some of the other officers from his regiment to their home, which was in Simbirsk on the Volga River. And there he was recruited into one of the white armies uh, to fight the, the Bolsheviks uh, in what became the Russian Civil War. And as you explain, that service ends up doing a lot to shape his life, not just the moment, but in his later years when he is trying to get back into the Soviet Union, uh, as it then becomes, and how that service ultimately serves as a barrier. And yet, as you explain, it doesn't really seem to define his politics. He doesn't seem to be a, a passionate white Russian committed to, say, the monarchy or to uh, a, a, uh, some sort of non-Bolshevik regime. Yeah, that, that that seems clear to me. My guess, best guess is that he was recruited into the White Army uh, because that's where his fellow officers were going at the moment, that he had to choose, uh, in fact, between being recruited into the White Army or being recruited into the Red Army. And he seems to have chosen the White Army and gone with the rest of his fellow officers from his regiment. Now, was he thinking of a military career during this time, or was he already beginning to think about uh, 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 moving into art and becoming an artist? He had wanted to be an artist uh, from the time he was a teenager. When he was in the gymnasium uh, at Mariupol, uh, the, the town where he grew up, uh, his uh, abilities as an artist attracted special attention from the school's art teacher, and he was given special tutorials uh, by that art teacher. And he intended to become an artist, but then, then came the war. And he ended up with essentially a 10-year detour in his plan to become an artist, first by his service in the Russian cavalry, then his service in the White Army. And once uh, the, he, he left the Civil War and became a refugee in China, uh, he found that he, in order to, to make a living, he needed to go to work for the local warlords. So he continued as a cavalry officer for another several years, training cavalry for the local warlord in, in what uh, is often called Manchuria, north, northeastern China. What was his life like in, in China during this time? Was he uh, relatively unique as being uh, in terms of being a white Russian in China, or was he part of a larger community? That part of China had a large Russian population uh, beginning uh, decades before this, because uh, that part of China, if you can visualize a map, it sticks up into Russia. It's surrounded on two sides, uh, both the, the, the um, northeast and the northwest by Russian territory. And the Trans-Siberian Railroad goes around it, but the Russians also built a railroad across it. And the city of Harbin, uh, which is in the center of that railroad that crosses uh, that part of China, was really a Russian city. 
and and so when he first went into that part of China, he lived in Harbin, but he was just barely able to make a living there. It was a city filled with many Russian refugees. Uh, and then he took the job working for the local warlord and moved to Mukden. And there, too, there were a lot of Russian refugees. Uh, the That local warlord uh, had recru- actively recruited white Russian army officers to help train his troops uh, in the, the various conflicts that were going on in China at that time. So he was surrounded by Russians in that part of China. And uh, he actually met his, his wife there. His wife was the daughter of a colonel in the Russian army who had established himself in Mukden uh, and was in the process of creating a language school because he, as a Russian officer, he had been trained in a number of languages. Uh, and so uh, Viktor Arnatov met his wife, Lydia Blonsky. They were married. Uh, they had two children while they were still living in Mukden in that part of China. But in the end, after this 10-year-long detour, uh, he once again was able to go to art school uh, because his father-in-law helped to pay his way to go to what was then the California School of Fine Arts in San Francisco. Uh, it's now called the San Francisco Art Institute. And by going to San Francisco, he was actually following a route that many white Russians had already followed and that many more were to follow in the near future. Uh, There's a large Russian community in San Francisco, and some significant part of it came to San Francisco by way of northeastern China. You mentioned that he was not necessarily focused on San Francisco, but it was as it was for some of these other Russians, the easiest uh, way of getting out of China. Exactly. It, it, was, uh, it was either going to San Francisco to study art or going the long way around to Europe to study art. And uh, San Francisco was closer. And, and it was also the case that he very likely knew people who were already in San Francisco, who he had met. Uh, either in the White Army or who he had met in northeastern China before he uh, undertook his journey to San Francisco himself. What was his time like in San Francisco? When he gets there, uh, how did he fit in? How well did he settle in? And and how did he do in his early art education? Well, I think that his very first term was probably a disappointment to him because he didn't get very good grades. On the other hand, he came into the term uh, almost two-thirds of the way through the term, so he couldn't possibly have accomplished nearly as much as some of the other students who had started at the beginning of the term. After that, however, his grades improved markedly, and he became one of the the star pupils by the end of three years, uh, really attracting a lot of attention from some of the more distinguished faculty members who were teaching there. Uh, one of whom, Ralph Stackpole, gave him a, a very important recommendation. Uh, at the end of about three years, Arnatov had to leave the U.S. because his student visa was running out. So he had to, to get outside the country. Uh, at that point, uh, Ralph Stackpole, one of the, the prominent faculty members at that school, said, well, why don't you go and spend some time with Diego Rivera in Mexico? 
And Stackpole explained that he and Rivera were old friends going all the way back to their own student days in Paris before World War I. And so Stackpole wrote a letter of recommendation to Rivera, and Arnatov and his wife and two children, two boys, uh, headed for Mexico. Uh, and once he got to Mexico, he did meet Rivera. Rivera said, I'm not taking any students, but you can go to work for me as my assistant because you already know something about doing fresco painting. Uh, and so he, Ar Arnatov was able to spend two years working as an assistant to Diego Rivera on two of Rivera's most important projects. What, what sort of uh, art, in addition to fresco work, was Arnatov doing at this time? Well, when he first went to San Francisco, he wanted to be a sculptor. Uh, and he did some, some, uh, a good deal of work with sculpture. He even won a prize for one of his sculptures. But he said that once he began to understand the potential for mural painting, that really took a hold on him because he saw mural painting as a way to bring his work to a large audience. You know, mural painting is painting on a whole wall, and typically that's done in a public place where lots of people have the ability to see it. And that later became an important part of Arditov's approach to art. He didn't like the idea of doing art that would be sold just to one wealthy patron and hang in that person's home and only be seen by that person and his family. Arnatov saw the purpose of art as to bring a message to the viewer. And if you see art as having that purpose, you want to see as many you want to have as many people as possible see your artwork. And so Arnatov was initially attracted to doing large public murals of the sort that Diego Rivera by that point in, in, in Arnatov's uh, student career, uh, Rivera was certainly probably the most famous person in the world for creating large public murals. So he undergoes this apprenticeship, which is, as you described, extraordinarily educational. He's living with one of the preeminent artists of the 20th century. What brings him back to the United States? Well, at the end of about two years, uh, a couple of things happened simultaneously, I think, that helped to bring him back. First of all, uh, Rivera himself came to San Francisco. There's an irony here that, that Ralph Stackpole sent Arnatov to Mexico to study with Rivera. And Stackpole was also directly responsible later for bringing Rivera to San Francisco to do some big murals in San Francisco. So, so for a time, uh, Rivera simply left Arnatov in charge of what's arguably Rivera's most famous work, uh, the big mural over the stairway at the National Palace in Mexico City. Uh, and Arnatov, by that point, after two years, felt he had learned important things from Rivera. Uh, but having learned those, he felt that he had learned what he needed to learn, and that he now wanted to return to the United States, uh, and specifically to San Francisco, where he, he still had a lot of friends from art school. So he was able to get the legal documents to be able to become a permanent resident. 
Uh, and so it, in uh, 1931, he and his family, he now had three sons. They had a, a third son born while they were in Mexico. He and his family returned to San Francisco. The, one of the things you do in the, your book is you integrate the events surrounding Arnatov, given that those events oftentimes uh, form themes in his art. I was wondering if you could explain what was happening in San Francisco in the early 1930s and how Arnatov fit in with, the, with life in San Francisco during that time and then also the, the, the art scene at that time. Sure. Well, when I think about biography, I can never think about the subject of a biography without putting that person in the context of the times, because everyone is is affected by the events around them in significant ways. So, of course, that's what I do in this book. That's what I've done in in other books uh, and and things that I have in progress. So, when Arnatoff and family got back to San Francisco and and realized what the the state of the economy was, he set out to attract as much attention as he could. He first held an exhibition of some of the paintings he had done while he was in Mexico uh, and and really was able to find some some patrons who still had money. And he selected a studio for himself with a large blank wall on which he intended to paint a mural that would attract a lot of attention. So he did. He painted a mural on the wall of his studio that that showed many of his fellow artists and also a nude model. Uh, and, and he showed his fellow artists sketching the model. Uh, it was covered in all four of the city's daily newspapers, and one of them even ran a photograph of the mural, although they airbrushed in some clothes on the model so that there was any nudity in the newspaper. And this did attract attention for Arnatov. He soon had a commission to do some murals for a brand new medical clinic uh, down the peninsula in Palo Alto. And those murals too attracted a great deal of public attention. Uh, there, there was a woman getting an x-ray with, and, and her breasts were exposed. And the murals created a traffic jam in Palo Alto as people uh, came to see the fact that there were bare breasts on display in front of the new medical clinic. Um, so the, the, the publicity for this, I think, was both good and bad. <laughs> um, but, but in the end, it was good. I, I was... Then uh, was able to get an, a private commission for a big mural. Uh, from another artist, a wealthy artist. Uh, and then soon after that, in the closing months of 1933, uh, there were new federal funds available to provide work relief for unemployed artists. You describe as one of his most high-profile projects, one of his most enduring ones during this period, is his work on Coit Tower. And I was wondering if you could explain a bit about that, because that, that's one of the ones which people might be most familiar with today. Right. Now, I do think that his mural at Coit Tower is arguably uh, his best work, uh, and it's certainly his best known work. Coit Tower is a, a tall, um, cylinder-like building on top of a hill in the northeastern part of San Francisco, uh, it was built there as a part of a bequest by Lily Hitchcock Coit 
uh, for whom it's named, she left part of her estate to help beautify the city. And a, a committee uh, decided that they would put up this tower uh, on, on the top of, of Telegraph Hill uh, as a monument to Lily Coit, but also as a way to beautify the city. So this building was completed in the fall of 1933, but it was empty. They'd originally thought it might be a museum of pioneer days. Uh, but then federal funds came available in December to employ artists, as well as many other employed people, of course. But, but uh, a special committee was set up to uh, establish uh, various places to, to employ out-of-work artists. Um, the committee decided Coit Tower was a good location to do murals similar to the murals of Diego Rivera. Because you remember Diego Rivera had come to San Francisco just a couple of years before, and he'd done two large public murals that had impressed the art community of San Francisco. And many of the artists in San Francisco had come to watch Rivera at work, or they'd come to see his work. And so the committee that was responsible for finding places where artists could do their work, chose, chose Coit Tower. And they selected 25 uh, master artists and almost as many assistant artists in order to create Rivera-like murals uh, throughout the building. Uh, so there, the murals are on two floors, and some of them are quite large, others are fairly small, um, and Arnatov was one of the artists chosen, and he was also designated as technical coordinator for all of the project because he had had the most experience working with Rivera. Some of the other artists had done fresco murals before. Some of them had observed Rivera's work in Mexico and observed Rivera at work in Mexico but Arnatov clearly had the most experience, both with doing large-scale fresco murals and the most experience working with Rivera. So he, he did a mural at Coit Tower uh, called City Life, or sometimes called Metropolitan Life, which was supposed to show the city life that emerged from California's industry and agriculture. The, the overall theme at Coit Tower was California today. And so there were some artists who were assigned agricultural topics, some assigned industrial topics, some assigned city life, some assigned home life, and so forth. Uh, but Arnatov's mural shows downtown San Francisco, a very busy, bustling place filled with people, filled with people at work, uh, filled with... Uh, with the people uh, who worked uh, both with their hands and in industry and in the produce market, but also people who worked in the financial district. So it's just a wide range of people that Arnatov depicts in that mural. Now, while murals are what Arnatov is best known for, and I, I want to get back to discussing them in just a minute, you also describe that he is involved in other artwork at the time, such as uh, woodblocks, and how he is not just creating art on commission, but he's also seeking to make statements about life during this time. And I, was, I was particularly uh, 
uh, I found that this, uh, discussion of his depictions of the longshoreman strike in 1934 to be t- particularly interesting in terms of that intersection of the theme in your title about the politics of art. Right. About the time that Arnatov was finishing his mural at Coit Tower uh, in early May of 1934, uh, there was a major strike that began all up and down the Pacific coast. It, it began with longshore workers going on strike, and they were soon uh, followed by other maritime workers, uh, those, uh, the, the men who worked on in the merchant marine, uh, either as crew members or licensed officers. Uh, and they essentially sought to shut down all shipping on the Pacific coast until they could be recognized as unions and could have some kind of, of an agreement over working conditions. Uh, on and, and this right drew both from uh, the shipping companies, but also from the business community more generally, because maritime commerce was such a central in part, a central part of the economy of San Francisco. Um, so much of the city's business community united in an effort to break the strike, and it became quite violent. Uh, beginning on July 3rd and then especially on July 5th. On July 5th, uh, two men were killed by the police and about 100 people were injured when the police really attacked strikers and strike supporters who were protesting against the use of strike breakers. And Arnatov was very affected by this. He later wrote in his memoirs, that this strike had really revealed to him many of the inequalities in American life. And he did a couple of very dramatic woodblock prints of the strike, uh, showing the police attacking strikers and later showing the National Guard patrolling on the waterfront protecting strike breakers. Uh, And one particularly dramatic one showing the funeral procession for the two men who were killed as it, as it filled uh, all of Market Street, San Francisco's major thoroughfare. And by doing woodblock prints, he was also trying to make his art available to large numbers of people. Uh, just as many people can see a public mural, if you can make a large number of prints from a woodblock carving, Uh, you can also get your art out to a lot of people and deliver your message. Uh, Arnatov didn't number his prints, so we have no idea how many of these he may have made. But the indications are that uh, that for some of them, uh, that they they made uh, large numbers of them and and distributed them up and down the waterfront as a way of, of bringing you know, more awareness of the, the violence of the strike and, and the, uh, the uh, problems that the longshore workers faced. By the late 1930s, you, you established that Arnatov is one of the leading figures in the Bay Area art scene. And you also described that his mural work isn't just confined to uh, San Francisco or the Bay Area, but also he's doing mural work in Texas as well. Right. I... I Found that point you made about the uh, about his depiction of African Americans in uh, the two murals in uh, Texas Post Office to be especially fascinating, and how that spoke to uh, an aspect of his of his consciousness at that time. 
that was not was very unusual for uh, the a lot of the muralists that were painting uh, murals for these uh, post offices. Yeah, that's so. Um, Arnatov uh, began to get some commissions to do murals in new post offices in the late 30s, just about the time that he secretly joined the Communist Party. So his politics had moved well to the left by the late 30s. Uh, and we can talk about that uh, separately, but let me let me say something about those two Texas post office murals. He was first given commissions to do post office murals uh, in College Station, Texas, and then after that in Linden, Texas. Um, and he did, of course, some research on these murals. He had always been very careful to research his murals. Uh, all of these federally funded murals were supposed to deal with the American scene in some way, either present time or, or historical. Arnatov tended to do uh, murals that focused on the present time. So for College Station, Texas, he uh, was, it was suggested to him that his mural should show both agriculture and oil. So how do you put these together in a mural? Well, he showed in, in the foreground of his mural, he showed uh, about a half dozen African-Americans picking cotton, literally on their knees picking cotton, dragging huge bags behind them, and taking their cotton to be weighed by a white waymaster. So that's the foreground. In the center, there's a white farmer on a tractor moving exactly opposite to the direction that the African-Americans are moving as they're picking cotton. And in the far background, we see oil wells spouting. And to me, what Arnatov was showing here was the economic inequities of life in East Texas that African-Americans were doing hard physical labor and white Texans were able to benefit from agricultural technology. So he shows the African-Americans moving one direction on their knees and a white Texan on a tractor moving in exactly the opposite direction. To me, uh, it, it's a very strong statement that Arnatov was making. His uh, mural in Linden, uh, Texas, also shows African-Americans picking cotton by hand. Uh, and again, on one side, he shows a very nice house, presumably the house of the owner of the cotton field. And on the other side, some, some little shanties that are presumably the homes of those picking the cotton. Um, and so again, he's contrasting the economics of of East Texas uh, between those who were uh, at the very bottom of the economic scale and those who were uh, at the top. Interestingly enough, there were uh, there's a, a great book that shows all of the Texas post office murals done during the New Deal. I think there's 69 of them all together. And I went through the book and looked for other depictions of African Americans in the other post office murals. And by my count, the African-Americans in Arnatov's two murals make up almost half of all the African-Americans in all 69 of those Texas post office murals. 
which to me is just an astounding statement about Arnatov's sensitivity to race as a significant factor in economics. As you also described, though, his, his politics are also taking a very defined form. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that political evolution and uh, how it changes him and maybe influences his art in different right. ways. Well, Arnatov's political evolution, in my uh, understanding, uh, started especially with his work with Diego Rivera. At the time that Arnatov was working with Rivera, Rivera had been expelled from the Mexican Communist Party. Uh, but that didn't mean he wasn't still, in his own heart, a communist, uh, but perhaps with a small C instead of a capital C. And Arnatov remembered that he and Rivera had many long talks as they worked together, uh, first in Guernavaca and later in Mexico City. And in those talks, uh, Arnatov learned a lot from Rivera, first about the Soviet Union, because Rivera had been to the Soviet Union and, and spent some considerable time there. Uh, but, but also he had learned from Rivera, uh, Rivera's own notion of what communism meant, that it meant equality, that it meant uh, an end to the oppression that he, he uh, attributed to capitalism. And of course, one of the deep ironies of all of that conversation taking place in Cuernavaca was that the mural that they were working on was being funded by a Wall Street banker. So, <laughs> and, and that had that had been one of the reasons Rivera had been expelled from the Communist Party is that he had had become too comfortable with the bourgeoisie. But be all that as it may, that's a beginning of Arnatov's political evolution, and of course. Then in 1934, he was very affected by the Longshoremen's Strike. And in the mid and late 1930s, he says in his memoirs, he was very affected by the Spanish Civil War. Now, he had gone through a, a bloody civil war himself. And, and to see the war in Spain between, on the one side, the fascists and the monarchists, and on the other side, the Republican government of Spain, which was getting support almost solely from the Soviet Union and a little bit of support from from Mexico. Um, uh, Arnatov was very affected by that as well. Now, so you can there's a kind of a growing attraction here to the Communist Party. In part, growing out of his longing to return to Russia because he never wanted to leave Russia. He just had to leave Russia because as a former white officer, he couldn't go back. But he learned about what was going on in the Soviet Union through the Communist Party sources in San Francisco. But he was also learning about what was going on in the Soviet Union from the letters from his family who was still there, his mother and his father. And their letters made it clear that they were seriously suffering, uh, that, they, that they really needed financial assistance. And he was sending them money in the early 30s because of the drought and because of all of the shortages and, and the famine that was taking place in, the, in Ukraine at that time. So he, also, he not only 
learned about what was going on in the Soviet Union from the communist press, which tended to glorify it. But he was also learning about the, 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 the more difficult problems of life there in the letters from his family. He got some letters from his mother, especially, in which she said, why don't you come back and take care of us in our old age? All of our sons have left us. And that was true. Victor had been an officer in the White Army. He couldn't come back. His brother had been an officer in the White Navy. He couldn't come back. The youngest brother uh, hadn't been denied the opportunity for higher education in the Soviet Union because his father was an Orthodox priest. So that youngest brother had gone outside the Soviet Union to get his education and had remained uh, in Czechoslovakia. So uh, his mother and father had only their daughter there to look after them in their old age. And these letters are, are just really heart-wrenching to read. And so in 1936, Victor and his wife applied for permission to return to the Soviet Union, and they were turned down. His brother in Czechoslovakia applied for permission at the same time to return for the same reason, to take care of their parents. And his brother was also turned down. And as I look at the history of the Soviet Union in the late 30s, this was very fortunate for them that they were turned down because in 1938, Stalin's great terror uh, resulted in the execution of Victor's father, his uncle, and his cousin, among the many thousands who were also executed for being priests, for being wealthy farmers, for being former white officers, for a wide range of of, of potential political uh, uh, crimes in, in Stalin's Soviet Union. But they, he, it's an indication of the fact that both Victor and Lydia very much wanted to return to Russia. And this is not unusual among the Russians who were refugees from Bolshevism and from civil war. If you look at the literature of the Russian diaspora during this time period, the 20s, the 30s, and into the 40s, there's this deep longing to return to the Russian motherland. Very few of them ever did, but the Arnatovs applied in 1936 to go back and were turned down. In 1938, they joined the Communist Party. Now, I think their decision to join the Communist Party probably stems from at least three three elements that come together for them that year. Uh, first of all, there's Victor's growing understanding of economic inequities within American society. Secondly, there's this deep longing to return to Russia, uh, a deep longing that's compounded by the messages from Victor's mother and father. And then third, 1938 is really the high point of the U.S. Communist Party's popular front period in which uh, they seek to take part in politics uh, not by attacking Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, but by uh, becoming more a part of the political mainstream. It's a part of the Communist Party's history that didn't last all that long, maybe from 1937 to 1939. 
But that popular front period was a period when the party was probably closer to the mainstream of U.S. politics than it had ever been before or afterwards. And, and that's when Fechter joined. It's ironic that he joined the very same year his father was executed, but he didn't know about that. He didn't know anything about his, his, what had happened to his father and his uncle and his cousin until many, many years later. And even then, he may have only known the, the most vague outlines of the fact that they were taken away. The victims of the NKVD were often uh, not identified as having been executed uh, when the NKVD told their family members uh, that they'd simply been taken away to prison. So all, for all he knew, his uh, father, his uncle, his cousin had simply been arrested and were possibly still alive. Yeah, he, well, he probably didn't even know that because there's this big gap in the correspondence from his family at about that time. Now, it, 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 during the Great Terror in the Soviet Union, it became difficult for family members there to write to their, to their relatives outside the country. Uh, it, even that was dangerous. And so there's no letters from Victor's sister uh, to him until after World War II. So there's a big, a, a big gap in the family correspondence. So Victor may not have really known even that his father had been taken away and put in prison. As you explained during the war, you really see Arnatov's uh, patriotism at the forefront. And I was wondering if you could explain his uh, activities during those years, because it seems that as though he was still involved with his art, he seems to become a much more uh, prolific as a fundraiser and a champion for the cause of uh, Russia fighting Nazi Germany. Yeah, that's right. When Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union in the summer of 1941, Victor and Lydia both threw themselves into efforts uh, to support the Soviet war effort. Um, they became very involved in an, in an organization for Russian war relief. Uh, he became a, a board member for that national organization. Um, they founded the Russian American Society in San Francisco as a way of bringing together Russians in support of the Soviet war effort. And Victor became a board member of the American Russian Institute, which was a nationwide organization uh, that was looking to Soviet American friendship. So during the war, he, in his memoirs, he says that during the war, uh, he had very little time for art because he and Lydia were both so deeply involved in all of these efforts to raise funds and to assist the people of the Soviet Union and to assist the Soviet military. Uh, Lydia was an excellent translator. Her, her command of English was much better than Victor's. And so Lydia was often in demand as a translator for public events or for publications and such. And so they were both very busy with all of that during the war years. And the Communist Party in the U.S., was also strongly supportive of the Russian war effort. Not surprisingly, that's the, their attraction and their, their devotion to Soviet Union. So I see the war years as really cementing uh, the party affiliation that Victor and Lydia had undertaken just a few years before. 
those those uh, years from 1941 to 1945, when they were so deeply involved in all of those uh, fundraising efforts, uh, I think really cemented their loyalty to the Communist Party. That effort also brings him into greater contact with Soviet officials at the consulate and passing through. And as you explain, those contacts you know, end up causing him a lot of trouble after the war because they bring him under the, under the suspicion of the FBI. Yes, that's correct. Uh, it, it turns out that often Soviet consular officials who were responsible for cultural affairs were also KGB officers, that that was a convenient cover for KGB officers to be put in charge of cultural affairs. And it was often the cultural affairs officers at the embassy or the consulate who dealt with people like Arnatov, artists. Um, and it's clear that uh, Arnatov and his or various organizations did receive financial support and, and support in the form of publications from the Soviet Union. Uh, so he was meeting on a regular basis with consular officials uh, in in his capacity as uh, an officer of the Russian American Society, in his capacity as a board member for the various other organizations that were raising funds for Russian war relief. You uh, mentioned at the beginning of your book that you were able to get a hold of the FBI file, and it seems that they're, they never really gave up on their assumption that he was either being recruited or being approached. And you describe how they were following him really from the late 1940s right up to uh, the mid-1950s and, and to the point where they were uh, trying to plant devices in his car and, 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 and you know, monitors his conversations. Right. No, that's correct. Uh, he, he, the FBI opened a file on him in 1941, and they continued that file up until – up until the time uh, of his death, even after he'd gone to the Soviet Union. Uh, they continued to try to monitor what he was doing when he was in the Soviet Union. Uh, they even had an agent who, who had uh, watched him getting on board the ship when he was leaving uh, a port in Canada to, to go to the Soviet Union, to move to the Soviet Union uh, in 1963. Uh, and, and throughout that period, he was often under intense surveillance, and in part because of his contacts with those consular officials who turned out to be KGB agents. Um, there was one especially uh, that the FBI uh, was able to determine was the head of a major espionage ring. And so anyone who had had contact with that particular uh, KGB agent came under intense scrutiny. So at some point, the FBI uh, went to Victor and Lydia's house and said, we want to talk to you about uh, your contacts with this man. And Victor said, well, uh, you take this up with my lawyer. I'd like to have my lawyer present. And the FBI never did take it up with his lawyer. But thereafter, uh, in his file, there was always the notation that he refused to be interviewed. Uh, at one point, they, they interviewed his oldest son because there had been some discussion that perhaps his oldest son had uh, had been disaffected by uh, his, his parents' politics. And they didn't approach his son directly. They approached him very indirectly. Instead of asking directly about his parents' politics, they talked about some 
uh, his uh, about uh, his son's interest in um, in uh, amateur radio and had there been a radio signals coming from Victor's house and 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 kind of gradually led into a discussion of his parents' politics and and at least briefly the FBI considered trying to turn his son into an informant against his parents, but they finally decided not to do that. How was it that Arnatov was able to get back into the Soviet Union? Because as you mentioned, that was something that didn't happen for most of the uh, emigres and refugees. Well, he and Lydia kept applying. They first applied in 1936. Then they applied again uh, in the later uh, stages of World War II. They applied again shortly after World War II. Every time they were turned down. I found an excellent research assistant in Moscow who was able to get their last two applications to emigrate and was able to translate them for me. Uh, and it's clear that, they, that, the, that the one in 1948 uh, was being rejected both because of Victor's White Army service and Lydia's father's uh, connection to the White Army. So that was still a problem for Soviet authorities. So to me, there's this deep irony here that the Soviets don't trust him and the FBI thinks that he's he's a, a Soviet contact of some sort. Um, you know, neither side really trusted him, it, it, it seems. Uh, but finally, after Stalin died, they applied for a fourth time in the early 50s and this time they were accepted. And so they began to make some plans about moving. And at one point in 1961, Victor and Lydia uh, became a part of a tour group of, of Russian, uh, Russians uh, who lived in the U.S. who were um, uh, either sympathetic to communism or party members. And they, they had a tour of the Soviet Union which persuaded them that, yes, they really did want to emigrate. And so after they returned to the U.S., they began making all their plans that they would emigrate to the Soviet Union as soon as Victor retired from his teaching position at Stanford. And then Lydia was hit by a car one time when they were out walking, and uh, and she was killed. Um, and so Victor was now left alone. Uh, he was estranged from his uh, two of his three sons. His uh, art community that he had been so prominent in in the 30s was gone. His wife was gone. Uh, he said at that time, I felt like an unwelcome guest in America. And in 1963, he moved to the Soviet Union. Um, and he spent the rest of his life there. He remarried. Uh, he married a Soviet uh, art critic, uh, many years younger than he was. Uh, but I think that, that the fact that he was such a prominent uh, person uh, in, in the Soviet Union, by virtue of being one of those very few Americans who made the choice to come and live there, and his wife's connections, uh, helped him to have um, a pleasant life. He, he was clearly a privileged person in the Soviet Union. He first uh, was required to live in Mariupol 
which was the town where he had grown up. Um, and at first, uh, he had to live with his niece and her family, but an apartment became available to him after only about a year or so, a little bit more than a year, which was an unusually short waiting time in the Soviet Union at that time for anyone to get an apartment of their own. He had to wait only about six months to be able to buy a car. And again, it was an extraordinarily short waiting time for anyone in the Soviet Union. So it's clear that he was a privileged person, and he was privileged in, in, in a couple of ways. Not only was he this famous outsider who had chosen to come back, but he also had access to dollars. And in the Soviet Union at that time, there were special stores where you could buy things with foreign currency that were not available if you were buying with Soviet currency. Um, and so he and his second wife uh, were able to, to buy things in some of the major cities um, in, in Moscow uh, or, uh, or, or elsewhere, say in, in Leningrad, uh, in, in these special stores. Uh, that uh, things that would not have been available to ordinary citizens. Even so, even so, if you look at his letters to his son Vasily, he's constantly asking Vasily to buy things for him and send them. Certain medications for his wife, his second wife, that weren't available in Soviet Union, uh, a new pair of prescription eyeglasses for himself, certain kinds of paints that were unavailable to him there. So you can you, you can read between the lines in some of these letters and see that uh, life was was not uh, everything he had expected it to be. Uh, but nonetheless, it's also clear that he was having a much better life than the average Soviet citizen. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, um, I am working on another biography. Uh, I'm about maybe 40% of the way through a biography of Harry Bridges, who was a uh, leader of the Longshore Union. I'd mentioned the 1934 Longshore strike. Harry Bridges emerged into leadership among Pacific Coast Longshoremen during that strike. It's a project I started a long time ago and then kind of put on the shelf for a while because I was distracted by other things. But now that I'm retired, I, I, it's my goal to finish that project uh, sometime in the, in the next year or two. Well, I hope when it comes out, we can have you back on for another podcast uh, discussing that book as well. Yeah, well, I'd like to do that. Well, uh, Bob Turney, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. I have enjoyed it. 